Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation, and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Lab's Chief Talking Officer. And I'm speaking from the UK, Londinium, the land of tea and biscuits and cricket. In this episode, we're going to talk about leading technology with a toothbrush, of all things, and how to create customer-centric innovation and market disruption. And our expert guest is going to share his knowledge and experience on the subject. Let's greet our guest from Columbus in the US of A. Welcome, Brian. It's great to have you on our podcast. So before we kind of go into the company that you work for, what do you do and what's your role? Yeah, so um, I am CTO of Beam Dental and my role is fairly broad at the company. So I not only am responsible for the traditional engineering side of the equation, but I also have our product organization that reports to me. So that's our product managers, as well as our product design team as well. So UX research, our UX designers. And then on top of that, um, I also have our traditional IT departments, our help desk, network security, things of that nature, and our analytics team, which is responsible for our business insights, as well as our predictive analytics. Excellent, and and it's quite so. It's quite a wide, a wide kind of spread on your role. You know, it's um, it's it's, yes. it's across the organization. How so? In in yourself, how do you find that? Do you, is it tough going? I mean, it's tough going. I've always enjoyed it. My my background has been kind of all over the place. So I've done design roles, I've done product roles, and the longest period of time I've spent in my career has been on the engineering side. And I've been super, super passionate about tying those together. I think we've all either worked or been associated with organizations that struggle with the divide between engineering and product and design. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me to truly marry all three because I'm responsible for all of them. So if I can't make them work together, it's my own fault. Yeah, yeah, that's quite that's quite interesting because it's kind of come an end to end um, is bringing a, a number of different what would normally be the departments, I guess, and bringing them all together. So, do, do you get involved in the kind of uh, the, the sales and marketing side as well, looking to see the feedback you get from those departments? We definitely do. So we are, have a tight-knit uh, relationship with the marketing side in particular because we obviously have the product marketing side that we care about. And that's how we're making sure that folks are aware of the stuff that we're building. And then we have to tie that into the sales pipeline. And we have a unique system at Beam because we have to sell to brokers so that brokers can sell to employees sure. or employers to sell to employees. And so it's a B2B to B2C play. So a lot of our feedback has to come up through that sales channel because the people using Beam are not the people that we're directly selling to. And so it's a, a unique mechanism that we have to use for feedback on the sales side. Yes. So, so I, I've just realized that I've, I've made a bit of a faux pas here, uh, which is that we haven't introduced the actual company and the products. That, that's my fault, audience. <laughs> so, um, so I got so excited about finding out about you, Brian. So apologies for that. So in terms of the company then, um, uh, being dental, what do they do? Because they're a disruptor. I, I love this story. 
Yeah, so Beam started out actually as an electric toothbrush company. And so long before we got into insurance, we have a, had a Bluetooth-connected toothbrush that tracked your brushing habits. And that has been parlayed over the last few years into a full-stack ancillary provider. So group benefits, your dental, your vision, your group life. But our real, our real disruptor is the dental side of the space. The dental insurance industry in particular in the U.S. is fairly archaic, still lots of paper processes is still a lot of uh, where it doesn't feel like insurance necessarily. It feels more just like I'm paying so I can get my teeth cleaned twice a year and then you're going to charge me for everything else. Yes. And so what Beam's been able to do is through this connected toothbrush, track people's brushing habits and then bring value down to the member where if they are regularly brushing twice a day, they actually see a decrease in their premiums on renewal. And we're also able to interact with our members through that brush to promote healthier brushing habits to keep those non-preventative cases to a minimum. And so ideally we get to a point where we're helping everybody brush and floss on a regular basis and not having to go in and get root canals and crowns and things they traditionally have to come out of pocket for anyway because yeah. dental insurance hasn't always covered all of that that wow i mean that's i'm kind of blown away because um i think uh, when, when we first spoke brian i was kind of amazed at how you could reinvent a market the toothbrush market you know and yes. honestly if you just if you would got me sat down for about an hour i would have not come up with a with a concept when you guys have done guys you, you uh, boys and girls have done this you know which is great it, it reminds me of the pays you go insurance you know the insurance premiums go down depending on how you drive and how you look after yes it's very much a telematics play like you see out of insurance companies companies like metro mile even some of the big players here in the u.s uh, geico and progressive and stuff offer a similar type thing what is great for us is it's directly tied. I think one of the challenges telematics has had in like the car insurance industry is like, you can be an amazing driver, but some other idiot runs into you <laughs> and there's no way for us to predict that. Right. We can only predict how good of a driver you are on the dental side. Outside of genetics, there are very few things that play into whether or not you have uh, healthy teeth and gums other than the fact that you're brushing and maintaining them regularly. And so we're much more easily able to tie consumer actions to our underwriting model to understand what the impact will be. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, not being from the United States of America, um, uh, being in the UK, we, we get our dental kind of uh, um, uh, care for free. You know, it's all on, the, mm -hmm. on this fantastic thing that everyone hears about the National Health Service. So um, I, I can see uh, from your perspective, it's, it's such an important thing because I imagine dental costs in the US for our non-US uh, audience out there are quite astronomical potentially. Yes, especially because insurance traditionally is preventative leaning, meaning it's there to catch you when you need x-rays and when you need your brushing or when you need to go and get your teeth cleaned and whatnot. But when you get into those catastrophic things, say you chip a tooth, say you need a root canal, you need a bunch of cavities filled, it's always underperformed there. And that's why you'll often hear in the U.S. people call it, it's not insurance because it doesn't feel like your medical insurance where you know you're relatively covered. And yeah. so while dental insurance itself is relatively inexpensive, those out-of-pocket costs are what tend to kill the consumer because it's like, oh, I'm paying 20 bucks a month, but now I just have to come out $500 out of pocket for braces for my kids or something of that nature. Yes. And so by us being able to better predict what happens outside of those preventative costs, we're able to bring the cost down as far as an out-of-pocket expense for our customers long-term. Yeah, sure. So, um, so coming back to your kind self uh, in terms of your kind of journey with uh, Beam Dental, in, in terms of your role then uh, within the organization, where did you start with them? Have you been with them from the word go? 
I definitely have not. I don't get to take credit for this idea. Our three founders uh, started this company essentially out of college and they've done Beam for the majority of their professional lives. And so I joined the company about two years ago, September of 2018. And Beam has had an interesting journey because they started as a toothbrush company. Then they kind of backed into the insurance play, had to figure out the right way to go to the market. Uh, as I referenced earlier, it's very complicated. So it's not a direct consumer play where we just like make a cool app and do some marketing and people buy us. Yeah. So it took them a while to figure that out. And so the company had gotten as far as their Series C before they were really ready to scale. And that's when I joined the company. So when I joined Beam, we were roughly 40 folks with the product and tech org being less than 10 people. And since then, we've grown to about 200, 225 as an organization and almost 100 people across our technology organization. As you mentioned, you were, the company was ready to scale. Uh, the groundwork had been done to kind of create the market for this, uh, to kind of monetize it. So in terms of you joining the organization, did you join as a CTO or was that something that you kind of worked I under? did not. I originally joined as VP of engineering. So uh, when I joined, I was it was the typical founder story where you had an early stage employee that kind of grew into the leadership role, but had like outstripped their experience, which happens at every startup. And so I got to be the bad guy in the story that comes in and like, cool, I'll take this from here. And so I joined the company um, initially just to uh, roll over the engineering side and the products I was still managed by one of the founders at the time. Right. Okay. And and so in terms of, um, you know, you go get going in there, starting as a VP engineering and working way to the CTO. So what, so uh, maybe this is a bit of a tough question for you. So what, why do you think you kind of migrated towards that chief technology officer role then? What was it about you and your leadership? Do you think? I've always had this jack-of-all-trades background. I, I didn't start in tech. I spent the first 10 years of my life in sales, which is a completely orthogonal skill set for somebody yeah. who's an engineer. Uh, we're usually not wired that way. And believe it or not, I'm actually an introvert behind the scenes, but oh, wow. make it work over time. And so I have always been, I, I thrive in environments where I can be involved in the entirety of the business. And I think that's actually was a key to success for a CTO because often our job is to make things happen the idea generators in a lot of companies, we are also the executors. And I believe that my organization myself can be a better executor if I understand things from the sales perspective, from the operations perspective, and from the people perspective. And I think my involvement early on and not just, you know, growing and hiring engineers and shipping software, but also helping put our initial HR practices in place, helping uh, mentor the founders on the product side of the equation is how I ultimately found myself into the seat. But I think is a good path for anybody because as you grow with your company, those skill sets matter at the exec level far more than just like, I'm a great engineer and I know the latest and greatest in tech. You actually know how to come to the rest of the business and meet them where they are instead of having to talk over their heads with all the tech jargon that tends to lose people. That's right. Yeah. So, so I guess you kind of understand the business aspect of it. Also, this kind of outcomes, you're kind of interested in the outcomes from a sales perspective. You're going to make sure it fits the market. You're not just going to knocking out stuff. And you kind of see that. Do, do, do you find that your um, experience of sales allows you or invites you to be more kind of receptive to those those ends of the business like sales and marketing then? 100%. It is probably the biggest challenge I think any tech leader has is when they need to integrate with a sales organization. Sales is wired very differently with very different goals and incentivized in a very different way. And if yeah. you don't have a truckload of empathy for that, you can create a lot of conflict because they will rapid fire machine gun asks at you. They're very hard to tell if they're going to land or not. It's kind of a chicken and an egg problem with deal management, for example. And if you don't have or 
develop that understanding there. You can have a very adversarial relationship with your sales organization, which is ultimately to the detriment of the company. And I think that's where you have to be careful. If you become the shield maiden, so to speak, for the engineering team, your engineers love you, but the business ultimately suffers because you're trying to do what's best for the engineers every day and not necessarily what moves the business forward. Yeah. So for the tech leaders out there that are in roles, and maybe they kind of see this uh, big kind of blocker within their organizations, because I know I've witnessed it in the past where I've seen this adversarial uh, siloing of the different departments, particularly with the sales and marketing, because they do, as you say, they talk a very different language. What advice would you give for the tech leaders out there to, to maybe you know, open things up a little bit more? You have to view yourself as the connector. One of the responsibilities we have as CTOs is that our world touches everybody else's world and vice versa. That very rarely happens for other parts of the organization. And so once you recognize this, you start to realize that you need to have relationship with those folks. You need to have signals that you're pulling in and you need to share the responsibility for the KPIs that those people have. And so I think a lot of tech leaders get themselves stuck in SLAs and quality metrics and shipping velocities. And those are all great and healthy but I've moved those down to operational metrics because I want my leaders owning. And often cases I will be the exec sponsor alongside our CRO or CFO on a thing where we're not done until we've helped them achieve their goal. And that shared responsibility goes a long way to breaking down those silos and it gets you out of that order taking mode. That's excellent. I, I'm, it's music to my ears because one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is business agility. It's this, it's this organization working as a system as a whole. And, and mm-hmm. what you've described there is, is that, they, again, uh, one of my beliefs is that tech leaders are the kind of connectors. They are the ones that understand you know, the, different, um, the different aspects of the organization. They touch all the different parts of the organization and they're kind of the integrators to bring it together. And yep. what I love about what you said there is, is that kind of the social side of it, the kind of communication side of it is their kind of role as well, which, um, which is, I, I imagine that some, many tech people are quite introverted, you know, and they're not able to do that aspect of it. So what, what would you kind of say to that? It is definitely a challenge. Like I think even as CTO and someone who outwardly appears very extroverted, you have to figure out the right way of communicating with folks and you have to spend a lot of time focusing on your different forms of communication. Where I actually see uh, engineering leaders get more troubles on the written communication side, which I think is even more important today than it was before because so much of our communication now is happening via Slack or Teams or email. And so thinking about what the other person is hearing when you put something in there is very, very important because we tend, and I'm generalizing, but as tech leaders, we tend to be terse and very concerned with accuracy. And that often comes off as exactly that, right? It's terse and it's harsh and it's not necessarily uh, meeting them where they are in their communication styles. And so taking time to understand how people are perceiving your communication when you're building those relationships is important and asking and getting feedback from your peers about what you can change to make what you're giving them more digestible. You'll hear this talked a lot about in sales, doesn't get talked a lot about in tech, but if I'm telling you something and you don't understand it. It's my fault, not yours. And having that responsibility mindset is super important. And that's what will force you to go and get that feedback from your CRO or get that feedback from that VP of marketing that you maybe don't speak the right language for, because otherwise if you're missing, it's on you, it's not on them. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think that's great, bit of advice for, for tech leaders out there uh, because of their important role within organizations. And, um, and in terms of, so there's a kind of outward looking to the organization, to the, the CFO, you know, COO and what have you, and maybe even the kind of HR, because obviously there's a lot of talent and uh, skills development that needs to, 
this seems to happen. So you're kind of leading in that direction as well, uh, as well as leading down to your kind of, uh, you know, the, the men and women at the kind of coalface. In terms of talent, actually, how do you find that? Because technology is changing all the time. There's always new stuff coming up. First of all, how do you as a person kind of keep up to date with all this stuff? Uh, I am probably abnormal here, whereas at my level, I'm still very involved in coding. I don't code at Beam. I haven't committed a single line of code since I've been here, which is good for everybody. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I stay very in the open around like the open source community. So I'm fairly involved in the CSS and JS community in particular. It's something that I did when I was an individual contributor that I've kind of stuck with me. And it helps me both in my management skills because managing an open source project that's popular is a challenge in itself and also helps me stay up on technology. I still heavily utilize things like Coursera and just reading in general to, to stay up on things. So I'm constantly working, like I'm working on my AWS certifications and things. It's something I actually took from my dad. My dad was uh, one of those people that got bounced around from career to career a lot. He was in charge of new ventures originally for Rolls-Royce in the UK back in the day on the aviation side. And so he would go and literally go to school for the things that he was going to manage. And I think that just got ingrained inside of oh, me beautiful. where I'm doing a very similar thing. I can't uh, paper my walls the way he could with degrees, uh, but it's still like, I believe it's important to have a 101 level understanding of the things that you manage so that you can appropriately manage folks, you can help set expectations and you understand the challenges they're ha having day to day. But by only having a 101 level approach, it also keeps you from getting into the weeds, which is where tech leaders get dangerous because we start doing it for folks and then the other people don't get to learn and we're set to force our tech opinions and remove autonomy from the individuals. Yeah, that's that's really good. I, uh, as you were describing that, I was kind of wincing inside because uh, I used to be like that. I'd, I'd kind of get into everything and then uh, felt like I, I could roll up my sleeves so I did you know and it's actually quite hard to kind of manage yourself away but uh, what I love there is is that the um, you know the continuous learning and it's an active thing and by the way thanks to your dad for that you know thanks dad you know it's, uh, <laughs> exactly great bit of advice and 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 you do find that actually with the within kind of the tech communities uh, they are continuous learners they don't stop it's relentless you know um, yep. that's part of their nature maybe it's also one of the most exhausting things. Like I've had many of mentorship conversations with individual contributor engineers that think leadership's going to get them off that, that hamster wheel, right? Cause it feels like I'm always learning something new. If I don't keep my skills up to date, I'm going to end up, you know, working for some large bank writing COBOL in 2030 or something of that <laughs> nature. But it is a thing, like you're just trading one for the other, right? You're either going to be constantly learning on the tech side or constantly learning people management or business management. I'm like learning financial modeling for the first time, which is not a skill set I ever thought I'd have to go deep on, but it, your role just changed but I think I agree like engineering is probably it's more built into the day-to-day -day more than any other function just to maintain your current skill set because things kind of sunrise and sunset so much uh, and so quickly as a technology sure yeah so in terms of the kind of now pointing the leadership down to the to the men and women at the kind of coalface doing the actual work you know the, these are the kind of techies um, and, and implementers and testers so uh, how do you kind of support as a leader support them in terms of making sure they're up to speed and and you see some new technology maybe that's coming up you have to be willing to invest in your folks. I, I think that's a, it's a cliche thing to say. Everybody says your people are your most invaluable resources, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you have to put your money where your mouth is and understand that there's short-term costs to long-term gains here. And so people will often scoff, like for example, Beam, we have a fairly healthy learning budget and we spend a fair amount of time encouraging our folks to use it for that reason. There's certain skills that you can very easily teach. I can teach you to pick up TypeScript. I can teach you to transition from Ruby to Java, whatever the case may be. All my engineers are listening now wondering if that's what we're going to do. <laughs> but 
But what you can't do is teach those, those, I hate to use the term softer skills, but the things that are not a hard engineering skill, right? If you have the basics of good design, if you have the basics of architectural knowledge, how to work in databases, et cetera, I can deal with that all day long and I can teach you the technologies as they get laid out in front of us. And so that's the mentality we take both with learning and with just hiring, right? Yeah. We are in a market where we are a Ruby and React shop and a market until recently moving uh, to remote first where Ruby was not rampant in the Columbus community. And so we had to get really good at finding leading indicators of technology success, even if they didn't have on their resume five years of Ruby experience or three years of React experience. And that has served us really well because when we do want to be flexible and introduce new technologies, we have people that have a demonstrable ability to switch to new technologies and be a polyglot, so to speak. And that is where we focus our efforts. How can we make everybody have a better general engineering foundation and then use things like our learning budget uh, to ramp people up when we do want to go after a particular technology. Wow, that's really interesting. And um, so your company invests quite a lot. There's, there's a good, nice uh, funding of that aspect of it. Exactly. And and we it, you basically look at you're paying it over time, right? I can either pay a certain amount of money per engineer to keep them up to date and always do te- new technologies based on their uh, what they're interested in, or I can run them on the Ruby train until Ruby doesn't work for us anymore. And then I have to go and spend a ton of money at once to either rehire or to rejob folks and move everything around. And it yeah. allows us to be more nimble. We can you know start dipping our toe into Elixir. We can start using things like Kubernetes without having to make it a major organizational shift because I already have two people that were interested that Beam enabled to go and learn Kubernetes on the side and then they become my SMEs when I'm starting to get into that new technology and knowing that we're always going to have that background ramp building up to any technology at any given time gives us a lot more flexibility than if we had to do the digital transformation corporate version of this where we pick the new (laughs) technology and invest in tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars and shifting people over. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, and the leading indicators and knowing what technology is coming up, because we were kind of joking uh, uh, before we started the recording uh, of tech leaders being like, like uh, time lords, you know, they, yep. they've, got to, they've got to understand the past, they've got to understand the present and the future as well at the same time. So in terms of the future, how do you kind of envisage what's coming up, what you need to be ready for? I think it depends on your company, right? I'm one, I'm very pragmatic when it comes to this stuff. I I, am very wary of companies that go chasing the new shiny and technology. And again, it's a double-edged sword here, right? You want to be able to go to the market and say Elixir or Kubernetes has even been uh, guilty of this, where it's like, oh, we just want a technology for technology's sake because people will come and work here if that they're working on this new technology. The problem is, is two to three years or sometimes on even shorter timelines uh, that ends up being short-sighted and you need to move everybody over further. So I try to take a more problem-based approach with it, which is what are the problems that Beam has had over the last two years and what do these technologies bring to the table to help us solve those problems? If I am having, I'll give an example from a previous job at Bleacher Report, we struggled significantly with scale of Ruby applications. We had a monolith like everybody else did. We were trying to do lots and lots of transactions in a very quick amount of time. We were you know, competing with ESPN, trying to get notifications to your phone faster than they could. And it just didn't work. So we looked at ourselves and we said, so what would solve this? And you look at something like Elixir that's based on Erlang and telecommunications industry and lots of high concurrency self-healing processes. We're like, that sounds great. Let's go do Elixir because it solves this problem. And that is a much better way of approaching new technologies than just saying, I'm moving from React to Cycle or Vue because that looks interesting to me and I just want to do it. But it may actually make things 
worse off for you because you're not understanding the problem you're solving. So you can make the appropriate trade-offs for the inevitable pain of shifting technologies. And if you can never make that trade-off, it's always just going to be, I'm never going to do it because there's always pain in changing no matter how amazing a technology is, or I'm just always going to do it because I don't care about the pain and I have no ROI to justify the decision. So I'll just go, cool, I've always wanted to write Java, so I'm going to bring Java or Kotlin into the stack. Yeah, yeah. I've worked for companies where people have just brought in technology for the sake of it because it's the next shiny thing and and uh, it doesn't work out. It's kind of costly. It can be quite costly. It wreaks a lot of havoc because people don't understand this beyond just the technical implications. My onboarding is now more complicated. My hiring process is now more complicated. Sometimes my scaling is very different. One of the lessons we learned with the move to Elixir is traditional monitoring did not work well because Elixir self-healed so quickly that your traditional uh, APM tools couldn't get the data to the glass fast enough for us to know that it was flapping. And so you have like a variety of those type of things playing out. And a lot of people don't do that. They just go, hey, is this new technology cool and interesting and are enough people willing to learn it and you go yes you check the box and you move on and then you end up failing not because it was the wrong technology but because you didn't prepare yourself as an organization for what making that shift actually means ah uh-huh. that's yeah that's good and so in terms of we've got because we're in the tech space here and, and you're a cto we've got to talk about agile a little bit you know i'm an agileist yep. i think we've spoken about this before so in terms of agile how, how has that impacted your organization it, has it been, always been there is it something that you've introduced uh, it definitely has not. And we're actually in a weird transition right now. So uh, something to understand about the Columbus market is we're based in the Midwest in the U.S. that is behind the curve on software development lifecycle practices. We Agile is just coming. There's a lot of agile transformations happening. There are consultants everywhere telling everybody the right way of doing things. And so you'll often ha- hear me compare Agile to Agile with a capital A. Um, we in this market have a lot of Agile with a capital A, which is like a process and a bunch of people with certifications that are going through the motions but don't really understand what's going on behind the scenes. And we put a lot of work into trying to push Beam from not having Agile at all through that Agile with a capital A to actually what I, I post Agile, hopefully someone doesn't quote and turn this into a thing, but like this concept of post Agile, which is based off of the shape up framework that Basecamp has, which is not antithetical to Agile in any way, but I do think it's antithetical to Agile with a capital A, which is like like it's less process oriented, more results oriented. It's more what I would consider traditional agile trying to get at before it yeah. got corporatized. Yeah. And that's where we are at with Beam, where it's more about how close can I get the developers to the customer? How much can I tie, maybe even in some cases, literally their compensation to serving the customer's needs, not serving the developer experience or just shipping code quickly. We don't track story points anymore. We're far more interested in the value that we deliver. And so that's where we're at on our journey. We're still very, very early. Mm. And it's been a little risky, right? Like I had people that probably had never worked in Agile before joining Beam. They got like a six-month crash course. And then we said, no, wait, never mind. Let's move yeah. over to ShapeUp and give that a try because it more aligns with our customers. Um, and so it's been, a, it's been an interesting transition for us, but one that we are still uh, very much uh, trying to work our way through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a one thing I'm really surprised about is the fact that it, you know agile has kind of missed some corner of the world you know uh mm-hmm. you know in terms of the adoption because I mean it's just it, it's it's been um it, it's a little bit like Marmite do you have Marmite in the US you know uh, no we kind of do we're very familiar with it yeah there's a kind of love it or hate it for audience out there it's uh, it's something that people spread on their toast and you either love it or you hate it and I think agile's kind of ended up becoming a little bit like that uh, people get a really bad experience of it and then run a mile um so, that, so that's interesting how, um, so in terms of 
de- delivering value to the customer because that's that's the important thing right so this is where i think de- tech leaders uh, ctos and tech leaders out there are starting to look at this more and more so which is you know what are we delivering is it just something we're delivering output or is it an outcome so they're directly related to the kind of customer experience how have you found that hard to kind of get people to understand that or is that something that's always been in your bones oh it's impossible to get people to understand in certain scenarios i think the further you get back from the customer the harder it is to get it and the more strange your industry the harder it is right so i'll, I'll use an example duolingo um is kind of like the earmark for listening to their customers learning from it even quite uh, very directly through like machine learning and things of that nature we, i consider us the polar opposite of that which is like we are multiple layers removed from duolingo's uh closest to the customer and it is very very hard to understand without a very deep understanding of how dental insurance works to understand how you are impacting the customer. And so you know that like I am changing this process so it parses a claim faster. I have to connect that for engineers all the way to, here's what the claims experience looks like. Here's what processing that claim in a matter of minutes instead of a matter of days means to the dentist. Here's what it means to the member. Here's what it means to the employer. And so we have to go after each one of these personas when we are writing up pitches for work so that the engineers understand where we're at and then understand that downstream effect on their work. It's very similar when you're trying to go after quality with engineers where it's like no one likes being on call everyone hates bug tickets and things of that nature and we have to spend a a more time than i would like getting folks on the wagon of like yes but think about this right i'm at the dentist i just want to know if this is going to be covered or not i don't know because our system was down or our member success folks couldn't uh, answer the admin system whatever the situation is Mm -hmm. don't think about how oh that employee that works for beam is annoyed but it's their job to be annoyed think about how that mom may not know that whether or not those braces are covered and thus we'll go home and stress about the finances of that until beam gets their stuff back together and that's what we've had to spend a lot of time instilling in folks because it is so far removed in our space versus like being a direct consumer company where it's like i build a thing and i sit there and i want to see user metrics pop up and down oftentimes for us lack of usage of our tool is an indicator of success because it means people are just having a passive experience at the dentist and they're not having to call in and check on their claim or understand where their uh, toothbrush shipment is etc and so yeah. it's a little bit of uh, antithetical to the traditional approach. We've had to get creative about how to get the uh, our employees closer to that, those customer feelings. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's almost like uh, your, uh, your engineers need to have kind of field trips to understand that end of what they're actually delivering, you know? Exactly. We've, we've definitely had to steal from like the Zappos or Starbucks playbook here where it's like spend more time, like sit there and listen to phone calls. So we actually implemented this into our onboarding where you actually sit and listen to phone calls with members, listen to phone calls with brokers. And we're actually getting to the point now where we're going to start doing this as a regular refresher across the organization as well, because the business changes so rapidly and it's easy to forget because you had that 30 minute session a year ago and that's the only yes. exposure that you have. And we even have, like I encourage our engineering leaders to go and spend time, um, whether it be at dentist offices, doing user research, we record all our user research. And so we'll sit down and watch those videos and walk through them and like, oh, I didn't realize that like that thing that was super obvious to me is like actually really complicated for the average person to figure out using the toothbrush or when they're trying to find their insurance card, that type of thing. And it it seems duh, like, right, if you you read all the product books, this is like, yes, Brian, this is 101 type stuff. But this is very, very challenging when you're starting to get engineers doing this and not product managers doing this. And when you're trying to do it for a highly regulated industry, right? We can't, you know, sniff on our customers from a data perspective in the way like a 
Google might to learn how their customers are behaving. And so we have to get very creative about how we suss out info about our customers without betraying their privacy and their trust. Yeah, again, this kind of comes back down to that kind of big data minefield. There's so many uh, gotchas, you know, there. So, so in terms of the data then, you mentioned machine learning. Do, do you use AI in machine learning? Yes. So we do basically like any other insurance uh, telematics play, we are pulling in the data from the brush. We're pulling in data from the experience claims uh, that we have, and we're feeding that via machine learning into our underwriting model. And so underwriting is interesting because there's a fine line here where like it kind of smells like machine learning, even if the technology didn't exist, because you're doing experiential learning with underwriting anyway but we have found ways to auto feed that model and help that model learn. And it's kind of helping helped us in two ways. One, it obviously helps us provide the discount to our customers. We've been able to find out what these behaviors are through our experiential data and tell our customers what behaviors they should be partaking in to reduce their claims, but it also helps beam scale faster. Most insurance companies in the dental space are decades old. And so they have, it's very easy when you have a billion dollars to lose $10 million here in a new market or $20 million here in a new market market. Beam doesn't have that ability. So we also have to use our data to help us pick what market to spend our time in and to help ramp it up in a effective manner where we're not losing money constantly because dental care and pricing and usage is very, very different throughout the US. And that's almost a bigger advantage to us now than the underwriting model is because we still only have a small percentage of the addressable market. And we're up against these giant slow incumbents that can lose money and price us out very quickly because it's a blip on their radar. And so that's really one of our superpowers is being able to do that and get into these markets without losing money on the deal and scale faster than they would because they would take 70 years to do it. We may only reasonably have five to seven to do it as a startup. And so we have to be very, very careful about where we place our bets. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So using, using data that you're collecting to sense and adapt uh, which direction to be agile and to kind of adapt your, uh, your kind of uh, direction and development. Um, just kind of take a, a uh, so in terms of the vision of the product, I mean, for me, it looks pretty straightforward. You know, you're trying to kind of cut down. So in terms of setting that vision, and you've mentioned around the engineers being in touch with the kind of customers, understanding their journey, their experiences. In terms of the tech leader, then, do you, how do you find setting the vision and, and maintaining it? Do people forget? Well, they 100% forget. And it's a, I think CTOs often find themselves in these situations. I, there's a reason why there's a T in my title and not a P in my title. And people who've worked with me are going to call me out because I say it all the time. But like <laughs> our founders are our CPO at Beam. And you'll see this very, very frequently where you have these product-focused CEOs, your Jack Dorseys of the world. And so it's very, very important for you to build the translation layer between their often scattershot and high-level vision into something that is digestible by the team and find find ways to continue to refresh that vision because they are moving at such a far out pace. We talk about future thinking, like they are five, 10 years ahead and they often forget or don't care about what's happening today. Cause to them, that's already been ejected from their brain and you're building it and they need to move on to the next thing. Yes. So we do a lot of mechanisms for this one. Our founders have been awesome and spend a, tr- a tremendous amount of time with our product managers on a biweekly basis to constantly download new information. And we do it under the very protective umbrella of there is no action here. Um, 
um, the way we phrase it is assume that every sentence that comes out of a C-suite person's mouth is prefaced with, wouldn't it be cool if, so you don't just go run with that idea where I say, yeah, we should really have payments. And they're like, oh, I'm going to go build payments. And it's like, well, wait, hold on. Like, I'm just telling you where I want to go. And so they'll spend yeah. time with the product managers doing that. Our CEO in particular writes what we call these thesis docs, which is like the highest level version of a product requirements doc at Beam. And it's really just about, here's how I view the world. Here's how this piece of the world could be impacted by Beam. And here's some cool ideas that I've spent zero time vetting that I'd really like to see us go with. Yeah. So that's one part of it. The other big part is just maintaining a very clear, concise mission statement that you're constantly refining. Because Beam has grown so rapidly in the last two years, we find ourselves talking about refining this mission statement on an almost monthly basis. Because when I joined, it was like, hey, can we just offer a great dental insurance experience to customers? And now we're talking about ancillary lines of insurance, managing their out-of-pocket costs, delivering a great toothbrush experience, helping them with their preventative care, uh, potentially helping with their overall financial wellness. There's all these things that Beam wants to tackle. And it can be very disjointed and very distracting to the average engineer to the point where they just tune it out at some point if you're not careful about when and how you message that to the employees and making sure that you're giving them the most distilled and official version at any given time, even if your mind's 100 other places. Yeah, that's right. You've you got to be careful what you put into the space because people will run with it, you know, or they'll, they'll, they'll make an assumption around it. So I guess you find an enterprising yeah. PM that's built a thing you never intended on building because they had like a coffee chat with the CEO in their office yeah. hours. And then all of a sudden, they're like, all crap, over. are we committed to this? <laughs> that's right. And um, uh, uh, just as a joke, I always find it interesting that sometimes when people do an MVP on something uh, and, and if the wrong type of leadership that don't quite fully understand what an MVP is. They'll want to box it and ship it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, uh, yes, that is a whole, I could go on a whole podcast about that. I think uh, we talk about the relationship that you have with other parts of the organization. I think the inverse uh, contract needs to exist as well to solve the problem you just uh, brought up, which is like, I don't, an MVP shouldn't be, I found one customer to buy that thing I was testing and now we need to go fully productize it. And that requires a very flexible mindset from the other leaders around the CTO to be willing to deal with the ambiguity, the hacked together version in a spreadsheet, et cetera, to allow that experimentation, because you will always be resisting the organization's want to instantly productize anything that gets even an iota of traction and forcing you to overcommit because they want processes in place. They, they want none of the ambiguity. They don't want the customers to know it's a test and it, it's a hard balance to strike. Yes. Yeah. I imagine it's quite tough. So this kind of brings me back there to the Time Lord thing, um, the past, present and the future. So we kind of covered the future, the kind of leading indicators where technology is going being prepared for that from a talent perspective so how do you deal with the kind of past and the present because you've got legacy you've got old stuff and the things that are hitting now Yes. Uh, I, I have a fairly heavy handed approach to this that I will admit is not right for every organization, but similar to the story I told about having legacy leadership in place. When I took over, we of course had legacy technologies and beam sat in the trough before product market fit longer than a lot of companies. So we generated a lot more tech that than we traditionally did. So I actually stood up a platform organization and this is leaning into my background because I, I spent a lot of time managing platform teams that was in charge of sweeping up behind the rest of the organization. So this is going in, moving us away from a monolith to a more service-oriented architecture, going in and getting us on one single front-end framework and one database technology. And uh, I'll admit, and hopefully our CEO would as well, like there's a lot of skepticism when I'm like, cool, the first way I want to spend a million dollars at Beam is to hire people that aren't going to ship new products. And everybody thought I was nuts. But what it does is it pays off over time and your ability to speed up. Your architecture is more sound. You have a bigger safety net. So if you talk about shape up or agile or whatever version you're going after, the whole goal is to ship a lot 
lot of things quickly. And if you have to stop and vet everything before you ship it, it slows you down tremendously. But if you've got proper end-to-end testing, proper monitoring, proper multi-zone scaling, all of these things that like feel like an indulgence when you're talking about it, when you have 10 engineers, you have to be able to communicate the long play that you're trying to make here. Understand, going back to my earlier statement, understand the problems that you're trying to solve and build a team who are trying to solve that problem and be able to clearly articulate the ROI the organization is going to get in the next 12 to 24 months by fixing those problems. And so if you follow those steps, you'll be surprised how much money you can unlock in your organization for what is not pure product development. Because if I can get one more product per day, they would say yes all day long, right? If I said, I will get you per quarter a new product that you wouldn't get before, great cool, but I'm not going to do that by hiring people to build more products. I'm going to hire them to enable the people who build products. And that's the shift in, in perspective that I think was super important to Beam's success. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that. It's kind of building up the, uh, the, the foundations, the solid foundations, putting the things in place that allow you to get the things out. In, in terms of selling out to the other parts of the organization, because I can imagine that's a, that's a tough conversation, you know, to say, all this, all this money you're investing, you ain't going to see nothing for a while, you know? It really is. You have to have a willing partner on the other side. I remember it was probably my second week at Beam and I'm sitting in a room with a board member who probably signed off on my hire asking me how long I think this team would need. And I said, uh, 18 months would get us traction. And like just bracing for the inevitable, like, why do we hire this jackass? I'm going to get somebody else in. And so I, I had, you know, I've got to give all the credit in the world to the exec team, to the board at Beam for giving me that freedom. But I had to make a case, right? I couldn't just come in and go, I know more than the previous guy here's all the things we're doing wrong you have to be able to say through demonstrable evidence right it's not just hey we have tech debt and this will clean up tech debt it's like hey let me sit down with the people who've worked here let's talk about the challenges that they're having and start attaching fixes and roi to those particular things and i put together a fairly hefty doc that's still used today about like my platform vision for beam for the next two years and set that out at a very very high level of here's what we need to do here's why we need to do it here's the type of things that it unlocks and I can feel a little bit about uh, like patting yourself on the back if you're not careful, but I will often go back to the CEO even today and tie back successes the team is having to the work that that platform organization did earlier on. And yes, it feels a little dirty and you're like, look at me, but you have to do that because that's how you build the case going forward. When you no longer have that honeymoon period of like uh, the previous person screwed up a lot and I'm here to fix all their screw ups, which is what all new leaders coming to an org like to say, now you're fixing your own screw ups and you need to acknowledge that you're going to create your own tech debt and here's how we're going to keep it going but look at this value we keep getting to deliver i got to this product faster remember when that took six months and now it took six weeks you have to call those things out and continue to build that because your need for a team to clean up messes is not going to go away your team's not perfect you're not perfect so you just need to prepare that you're going to become that person you replace at some point but the difference between you and that person is you put contingency plans and a structure in place to keep that from getting to the point where it was detrimental to the business yeah, I love this. This is great. And you mentioned testing a second ago. I guess you, you have great kind of test suites that kind of like from the uh, unit testing to, you know, checking in code to the integration to the kind of end end to end. Getting there. I don't want to say too much because my, <laughs> then my team will take their foot off the gas. Um, we do. I think it's super important. So we take a shared responsibility model at Beam. We do not have a QA team, um, automated or otherwise. Um, we make every group be responsible for the code that they ship. Now we do have a site reliability organization, which is awesome, but their job is to enable the ownership, not to be the owners. And so this is the biggest line that I've drawn. And I think it's very trendy to call your DevOps folks SREs without having that portion of the program where you threw some SLAs in place. And now you say you've got SREs. We build the tooling 
whether that be the test suites, whether that be, we have a custom CLI tool that our SRE team has built that handles deployments, handles spinning up ephemeral environments that allow UAT testing on the teams, et cetera. But we push all that responsibility onto the developers themselves. They carve out time for UAT. They carve out time for writing tests. We build test-driven development training into the organization when you come in for onboarding. And that, to me, is how you make a team successful and sustainable long-term because it's very hard for me to sit here and say, I don't want to create all these silos when I'm talking about relationships with sales or relationships between product and design. But the biggest yeah. silo you can build in your organization is not making your engineers responsible for the beginning to the end of a delivery because yes. they will get whether they mean to or not. They will get into the over the fence model and they will throw it over to QA. Your QA organization will hate you and the quality will go down and your velocity will go down because you've taken away the responsibility for the final product. And you can't say that they deliver value unless they deliver the software in a way that customers can use it free of bugs and problems or yeah. being responsible for those bugs and problems. Otherwise you're just delivering code that somebody else has to clean up before it delivers value. Yeah. This, this, that's really interesting, Brian, because one of our previous podcast guests talked around this and you know they don't like the idea of having uh, Q&A kind of departments because it does create that kind of silo. It creates a fence, you know? It does. Yeah, and if the developers can kind of roll that in. So that must be quite hard to kind of uh, get developers to actually own that aspect of it. Uh, tremendously. And I, I would say, I would go as far as to say there's probably people that uh, chose not to work at Beam because of our approach here, which is perfectly fine. Everybody has different philosophies, but the type of developers that care about that stuff are the type of developers that will be easier to get to do the rest of what I talked about, right? They'll happily sit there and watch a customer interview. They'll go visit a dentist's office. They'll put on a headset and listen to customer service calls for half an hour, not just because you told them they needed to for a paycheck. And so it acts as a great filter for interviewing. If I sit down with somebody and they don't give a crap about testing or they ask like, what's your QA policies? Can I flip it over? If they don't care about warranty work after the fact, then they probably shouldn't work at Beam and they shouldn't work for your company if you care about delivering value because they you don't want heads down code shippers. You want yeah. autonomous product focused engineers that care about the experience end to end and only feel like they're done when the customer can seamlessly do the thing they set out to build. And it's a great filter in my opinion. It's not for everybody, and I understand why they exist in certain orgs, and I have all the respect in the world for the engineers that are QA engineers that need to do that, but I, I just don't think it philosophically fits Agile and what we're trying to do at Beam specifically. That's great. That resonates with me, and uh, I can see this kind of ownership uh, really driving, and the fact that you're not building up technical debt. Just to kind of as a side note, I worked for an organization that had a very sophisticated product, one that I couldn't quite see how you could test on a regular basis because it involved RF and mass. It was a mobile uh, mass, yep. and they they had a full from unit test integration to actually the product every night. It would just run these tests. I mean, they were quite simple, some of them, but it, you just knew everything was working. So yeah. And you've got to get there, right? Like we have the same excuse. I have an IOT toothbrush that's got to connect via Bluetooth to phones that are never in the same room as the toothbrush. And our members may only do something once a year, right? You may only roll an insurance once during open enrollment. You may only print your insurance card once a year. And so we have to be really, really good at testing versus use the fact that it's hard to either warrant a million dollar spend in QA or just choose not to do it. And I think the organizations that look at that and go, oh, that sounds daunting. That's probably a 
signal, you need it more than anybody else because it's not as simple as a CI CD pipeline that just spits out when your app goes to the app store. You have to be able to coordinate all these disparate pieces and understand like end to end testing and whatnot becomes far, far more important in that world. And a QA engineer is never going to understand the thing you're shipping as well as the person who wrote the code. And so why not just remove those inefficiencies and hold that person that wrote the code accountable for how the code ships and the quality of it when it ships. Brilliant. And uh, so coming back to this kind of uh, your developers understanding, I just can imagine that all you, uh, all the developers and all the tech people have got toothbrushes. Have they got toothbrushes as well beamed at of course, of course. Everybody gets their <laughs> gets their beam perks and they get their toothbrush and they're all, uh, you know, always playing with new iterations of the hardware as we you know, continue to grow as a company. And like it's it's something that is both uh, challenging to build, but also easy to dog food, right? You brush your teeth every single night. You are Hopefully. a customer. Obviously, we, we're, we're very generous with our, our healthcare benefits at Beam and obviously everybody gets their dental insurance paid for because it uh, fits the mission. And so they get to experience what it's like to use Beam. And we've certainly had these moments where like some Somebody goes to the dentist, has a bad experience, and it's nobody's fault but us. And so you don't come back to the office and go, crap, my dental insurance insurance company sucks. You come back and go, what can I build or what can I change so that next time I go, I don't have that experience because what is it like for the person that doesn't know how the software is built when they experience the same thing that I did? More eyes on the ball and you can actually see the ball, the whole team's kind of playing playing the game, which is great. I, I love this. I think the as a person that's interested in business agility and organizations that are customer-centric, truly customer-centric, I think this is great. This is music to my ears. So in terms of bringing things to a close, because I know we're kind of limited on time now, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. What what would be your um, kind of key takeaway for, for the audience out there, the kind of tech leaders and aspiring tech leaders? So I think the biggest thing is figure out for yourself and your organization what it means to truly be serving your customer. That is the thread that runs through everything we've talked about today. That is... I think my relationships with sales, marketing, and operations are important beyond I just have to sit in the boardroom with them. That's why I make the philosophical decision to not have QA at Beam. That's why we have product managers and designers and engineers all reporting to the same leaders so that they have that shared understanding. That's why we put the extra effort we do to download things from our from our uh, CEO's brain. It, it's the most important thing, but you have to define it. I think it's very easy to trick yourself into saying I'm customer first, right? Oh, I do surveys. Oh, I have a PM that goes out and does this thing. If you are customer first, that means every single person in your organization, whether they are writing code or writing requirement stocks or moving pixels in UX, you have to care about the customer. And that starts with the leader and how they role model and how they design their organization and the processes that they choose. And that's why that clear vision for what that means to you is super, super important. Otherwise, the org's forces throughout the organization will pull you in the opposite direction you want to go, right? Sales will not want to happily have a relationship with the engineering team. They just want them to ship stuff. And marketing is just going to want to do their thing without you. And your engineers are just going to want to ship code and throw it over the fence. And your designers don't want to have to deal with the technical implementation of their cool looking designs. We've all been here. And that's why that thread throughout and that vision is super important because otherwise they will not understand the role that they play in that vision. And then you cannot expect them to do the behaviors you want them to do. And it's fully on you for why that's not happening beautiful i love that that's great advice and again music to my ears uh, i'm looking forward to getting one of these uh these kind of um, beam dental toothbrushes i don't think we have them here in the uk because i don't think i don't know uh, no, we are us only at the moment okay so i look forward to to getting that uh, device at some point and uh, absolutely 
gratitude to you, Brian, for your time and, and sharing your wisdom and uh, knowledge and also to your team and your organization. Because as a whole, you seem to have you know, got something really good going there, you know, uh, very customer centric, uh, lots of lessons for the tech leaders out there. And I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, sir. Of course. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that was a great conversation with Brian. I get the feeling he's a real asset to the organisation. Dental Beam seems to have struck a wise balance in making sure their engineers are in touch with the customer's journey and ensuring the solutions they provide are fully owned by the engineers creating the work, thus reducing silos. There are so many gems of wisdom in this discussion, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to cover them all in this close. In fact, I'm not even going to try. Instead, look out for the webpage for the episode where we will break down the podcast into a table of contents with snippets and summaries of the valuable learning. And remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to IT Labs webinar series. URLs to these can be found at the bottom of the page. We are consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about services IT Labs provides, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And as mentioned in the intro, think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after yourself and keep safe. And don't forget to listen to the next episode of CTO Confessions.